Hey, good morning, Plum Creek. And it's powerful to see those images from the country of Myanmar and know that all of those people are precious to God, just like every person in every nation is precious to God. So I do encourage all of us to keep praying for people, both near and far, uh, for those who are hurting, for those who are in need, and especially for those who don't yet have a life-changing relationship with Jesus. You know, Plum Creek has a long history of being personally involved in God's work around the world. And I want to mention a great opportunity that's coming up soon in our backyard. And this is a place where you could get involved. It's the International Conference on Missions. It happens every year, but this year it's coming to the Duke Energy Convention Center up in Cincinnati on November 15th through the 18th. And all of you are invited to attend This event will be completely free for you because the registration fee is already paid for our whole church. That means you can go anytime you want, but we have a special Plum Creek night planned on Friday, November 16th, and we're going to meet at the convention center at 6 p.m. Many of our mission partners will be there, so we'll get to encourage them in person. We'll also attend a main session where we'll hear some inspiring things about what God is doing in the world. Now, as we get closer, we'll give you more information, but if you want to hear more today, you could pick up one of these magazines out in the mission display in our gathering area. Well, it is time to jump into the final week of our series called You Asked For It. And I have to say, these four weeks have been really challenging in some ways, but also very helpful. You guys asked some pretty tough questions, and clearly we needed to talk about some of these things. But we're not quite done yet. We have just a few more topics to cover this morning. And before I get to those, I do want to apologize that we haven't addressed every question that was submitted. Uh, It would have taken months and months to do that. But the good news is we're going to be dealing with some of those questions here in the near future in an upcoming series. For example, if you asked about heaven or hell or what happens right after we die... We're going to be talking about those very things coming up in March. But I'll repeat what I said a couple weeks ago. If if we didn't get to your question and you'd really like some help with that, feel free to email any of us on staff and we'd be glad to respond. Fair warning though, our response might just be, I have no idea. Uh, Because some questions are tough to answer. And that includes the ones on our list for today. We're going to tackle three of your submissions this morning, and they all fall into a category that I'm calling why questions. We all have our own why questions, don't we? We wonder why things are the way they are. We wonder why God doesn't solve certain problems. And and we might even say to ourselves, you know, if I was God, I might do things a little differently. For example, you might say, if I was God... I wouldn't let someone commit a crime and then get away with it. Or if I was God, I wouldn't allow innocent children to suffer. Or for me personally, I might say, if I was God, the weather forecast for this weekend would have been dry and sunny and calm with highs in the upper 60s. It would have been a perfect weekend for the Taste of Plum Creek. 
And by the way, in, in case you didn't hear earlier, we are still on for tonight, but we're sticking to our plan B because they're calling for some crazy winds this afternoon. But before we start thinking and talking about what we would do differently than God, we should probably pull back a little bit because I need to remember and we all need to remember that we're just human and we don't know what God knows. We don't see what God sees. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So anytime we start to feel like we might know better than God, we're heading into dangerous territory. At the same time, though, it's actually a good idea to take our why questions and go to Scripture with, with a spirit of humility. We may not find every specific answer that we're looking for, but we can always learn just a little more of who God is, and that's always a good thing. So let's go to this morning's first question, and this one is a classic. Someone asked, why did God make people? Another way to say that is to ask, why are we here? And I'd say just about everyone who has ever lived has wondered about this. Uh, why have I been put on this planet? So let's dive into this. Let's go back in time. Let's go back to the beginning of the Bible and see what we find there. Well, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth very familiar verse, and from there it goes on to give a description of the creation story. But Genesis primarily tells about the what. It says this is what God did. But our question here is about God's motivation. Why did he do it? And already we're in over our heads a little bit because we're trying to understand the mind of God. However, the Bible does give us some clues if we go over to the New Testament, to the book of Acts, chapter 17, we can rule out one possible answer. Let's read Acts 17, starting with verse 24, where it says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath, and everything else. So for our purposes, the key phrase here is in verse 25, where it says, as if he needed anything. And that phrase tells us something about the nature of God. It says that he is perfect and complete in and of himself. He is not lacking in any way, and he does not need us. So you know what that means. That means God did not create us because he was lonely. God didn't create us because he was dissatisfied about his existence in some way. And if we ever start to think of God as needy, our view of him is too small. But then why would God do this? Why would he go to the trouble to create you and me and everyone who ever lived? Well, we could come up with all kinds of theories but actually, we have a better answer over in Isaiah chapter 43. In this passage, God is speaking. Now let's listen to what he says. He says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. So did you catch it? What's our key phrase here? It's right there in verse 7, isn't it? 
why did God create everyone? He says he created people for his own glory. So that's, that's the short answer. And, uh, you know, th- that's very consistent with the message of the rest of the Bible. All of creation exists for the glory of God. And we get a little mixed up sometimes because we tend to think of ourselves as the center of the universe, but that's not the case at all. My life is not about me. Your life is not about you. I've said that many times. We're not the main character in the story. It's about God. It's not about us. And make no mistake, it is completely appropriate for God to display his own glory. Just like it's completely inappropriate if I decide to live for my own glory. So what's the difference? Why is it right for him and wrong for me? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? He is God and I am not. He is the creator and I'm just a creature. He is completely perfect. And I am hopelessly flawed. But you and I still have the opportunity to point to the greatness of God because he made us in his image and his fingerprints are all over us. For example, our physical bodies demonstrate God's genius as a designer and as an artist. Think about the human eye. An eye is beautiful to look at But when we consider the function of how it works and what it's constantly doing in in this room right now, man, the natural response is to be awed by the one who made it. Maybe even more significantly, though, our actions can bring glory to God, at least in our best moments. When we lift someone's spirit with a sincere compliment, when we show compassion to someone in need, when we choose to forgive others, We become a reflection of God's perfect love. And this, I believe, is a huge part of the equation here. Somehow, the love of God has to be a huge factor in why we were created. Look at 1 John 4, verse 8. That verse says, Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And let's pay close attention to those last three words there. God is love. It doesn't say God is loving. It doesn't say love is one of God's attributes. It says God is love. Now, in order for love to come to life, it has to show up in some kind of relationship, right? And if God wanted to bring glory to himself and display display the greatness of his love, how better to do that than to create personal beings who could be in a love relationship with him? Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? But right here is where things get a little complicated, and uh, this is when I need to bring up today's second question. And I believe this came from one of our students, and it's very insightful. The question is, why did God make the tree of knowledge when he knew it would cause separation? So a little context here, going back to the book of Genesis. Back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were able to do pretty much anything they wanted, right? Yes, with one exception. God gave them just one rule. He said, you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Any other tree is fine, just not that one. 
So at that point in history, this was the only law on the books. This was the only area where Adam and Eve could be tempted and fall into sin. And we know how the story goes, right? One rule was one rule too many. Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan, and they ate the fruit from that tree, which was an act of rebellion and sin against God. And this was the event called the fall. Mankind fell into sin, and that's when death and pain and all kinds of evil came into the world. So the question is, why didn't God just conveniently leave that particular tree out of the garden? Because no tree of knowledge, no temptation. No temptation, no sin. No sin, no fall or pain or death. That sounds pretty good, right? All of us could still be in the garden right now, just hanging out with God and having a great time. Why didn't God make it easier on all of us? Well, what did we just read in 1 John 4, 8? God is what? Love. God is love. And love not only requires a relationship, it also requires free will. If we don't have a choice, it's not really love, is it? For example, uh, I don't want my wife to love me just because God programmed her to love me. I wanted Hannah to choose me. I wanted her to look out across 3.5 billion other guys and say, that one, that's the one I want. The one with the glasses. (laughs) The one who's a little uncoordinated, yeah. See, my, my wife's love is meaningful because... She had the freedom to choose somebody else. So in order to have a scenario where we could choose God, there had to be an alternative. We needed another option, like a forbidden fruit, where we could say, God, I love you more than this other thing that's competing for my devotion. But ever since Adam and Eve, this is where mankind has struggled. Because at one point or another, All of us have chosen some lesser thing above God. And when we did that, we were choosing sin. And just like Adam and Eve, our sin put us in line for punishment. And just like Adam and Eve, we brought a death sentence onto ourselves. Now, if God's love for us had been sort of weak, that would have been the end of it. Because he could annihilate this universe and go start another one at any time. But God's love for us was not weak. He chose to love us despite our sin. Our life group is reading through 2 Timothy right now. And this week I was really struck by a phrase in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul is talking about grace in this passage. About how God offers forgiveness and salvation when what we actually deserve is punishment and death. And Paul says the most amazing thing down in verse 9. He says, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Now to me, this is one of the most mind-blowing phrases in all of Scripture. Do you see how far back this goes? A few minutes ago, we went back to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to the moment of creation. But this goes back even further, doesn't it? This verse is talking about the period before time began. 
I have no idea what it was like to live in the time before time, and I have no way to even picture that. But this verse does give us a glimpse of what God was doing back in that pre-creation existence. Back before the beginning of time itself, God already knew that you and I would exist. He knew that we would be here right now. He also knew that we would need his grace. That means he knew that we would sin. And that means he knew that Jesus would have to die on the cross as the only solution to cover our sin and restore our broken relationship with him. God knew all of that. And still, he went ahead and he created this world. He created people. Like we said, all of this brings glory to God and it points to his love. But there's still one thing to consider here. If God knew that he would offer this grace that we so desperately need, he also knew that some people would ultimately reject him and reject his gift of salvation. And if God knew that some people would choose to remain in their sin and be separated from him forever, why would God go through with this whole creation project? I don't have an exact verse to give you here, but I heard an analogy that makes a lot of sense to me. Someone said, God's reasoning might have been similar to some of us who are parents who chose to have a baby or adopt a baby. Back in my single years, I can remember thinking about kids and sort of imagining what that would be like. And I thought to myself, this world is so crazy. And and I've seen so many people who have been incredibly hurt by this world. And I've seen so many people who have fallen into temptation or doubt, and now they have nothing to do with God. And, you know, if I had kids, I wouldn't be able to shield them from all of that. I couldn't guarantee a perfect future. So maybe it would be better not to have children. But the years went by, and Hannah and I got married, and yes, we could have said having kids is too much of a risk. We're not interested. But by then, that line of reasoning didn't work with me anymore. We decided that we did want children, and we prayed for children for kind of a long time, even though they might one day turn their back on us, even though they might one day face great pain in this world. The risk was worth it because with children, there was the potential for deep love and deep relationships. Now that we're almost a decade into life as parents, I can say the journey is still scary, but it's still worth it. And I believe that's how God looks at people. He loves every single one of us. And he did not like the idea of a universe without you. And he can't stand the thought of spending eternity without you or without anyone else. That's what we read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, where it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You want to know why this world keeps dragging on, even though God could end it all at any time? This is the reason. God is love. And according to him, Every human being is precious enough to die for, including me, including you. And he wants to give everyone every possible chance to accept the gift of grace that comes through Jesus. His love is amazing, 
His love is perfect. And love is not only what God gives. Love is who he is. So I hope it's been helpful to consider these first two why questions. But we're going to finish with just one more. And it's pretty much the granddaddy of why questions. And a whole group of you asked it. The question is, why does God allow so much evil and suffering in our world? Really, this goes back to what I said earlier, how we sometimes think, yeah, if I were God, I might do things a little differently. And I was kidding around about wanting to change the weather for this weekend, but the truth is, this is no trivial question. As we go through life, we are constantly shocked and saddened by the suffering around us. We find ourselves asking things like, why does God allow mass shootings? Yet another one yesterday. Why does God allow devastating storms and natural disasters? Why are children abused in homes where they should be loved and protected? I was thinking about some of the events that I've struggled with over the past few years. There are quite a few, actually. But one situation that really got to me was the story of a little girl named Ella Bothwell. Three and a half years ago, I shared this picture with you. Ella and her family were a part of the church in Savannah where I served before coming here. Uh, Ella's parents were volunteers in our middle school ministry. And this picture from the spring of 2015 shows a a group of people from church gathering around seven-year-old Ella to pray because she had been diagnosed with a brain tumor. Her type of tumor was called DIPG. It was a horrible diagnosis. DIPG commonly strikes children between the ages of 4 and 11, and the overall survival rate is less than 1%. So despite the best health care they could find and despite the prayers of many faith-filled people, Ella passed away in March of 2016. So I'll admit, I really struggle with this one. Some of you know that I have a habit of going out to a library on Thursdays to work on the sermon. And this week, I spent some time revisiting Ella's story and looking at a bunch of pictures. And it wasn't long before I was sitting there in the public library with tears just streaming down my face, feeling these emotions of anger and sadness and confusion all at the same time. If you happened to see me and you wondered what my deal was, that was the explanation. But I'll be honest, this doesn't make sense to me. I truly believe that God has the power to heal anyone at any time. God has the ability to intervene in any situation. But in the case of Ella and in the case of many others, he doesn't. It's basically a knee-jerk response for us to say, why, God, why? I realize that some of you are asking your own difficult why questions right now. And I'm not going to pretend that I can put your questions to rest. What we can do is go back to the Bible and see what Scripture says about God. We can also see what God's Word tells us to do while we're struggling through difficult questions. And that's how we'll conclude this message and this series. So, Why do bad things happen? I'll tell you what we know, and some of what I'll share here comes from a preacher named Gene Apple. Here's the first thing to remember. 
we've kind of alluded to this already today. The world that God originally created was good, completely good, free of suffering and tragedy and death. Going back to Genesis chapter 1, we read that God saw all that he had made and it was very good. But like we said earlier, everything changed when we got to the fall, when sin came into the world. So quick review, why was there a fall? Because God gave us free will and people made bad choices. Well, why did God give us free will? It's because there is no love without choice. And from that point on, bad things have happened. And we can't always pinpoint the exact causes, but we do know some general causes. For example, some bad things happen as the result of our own sin. There are consequences when we choose to be greedy or selfish or when we don't approach sex God's way or when we drink too much or eat too much and so on and so on. Sin brings pain. And some of our pain can be traced back to our own bad decisions. In other situations, though, you had nothing to do with it. Some bad things are the result of other people's sin. If you were abused, that wasn't your fault. If, if a drunk driver brought grief into your family, that wasn't your fault. You and I sometimes have to deal with the consequences of someone else's bad decisions. But here's the bottom line. Most bad things happen simply because we live in a fallen world. And that may not always be the most satisfying answer, but it's true. This world is broken. It doesn't work in the way that God originally created it to work. And one day, he's going to fix all of this. But right now, this world is what we've got. And it's not like God hasn't been open about this. Jesus told us, in this world, you will have trouble. So he's acknowledging that, yes, things will not always go well in this life. You can expect trouble and pain. But look at the good news here. Jesus says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And this is what we have to focus on in a time of suffering. Jesus is our hope. Our hope is not found in human abilities or human institutions. At best, people can only provide temporary solutions. God is the only one who gives real and lasting help. And he can take even the worst of situations and bring good from it. That's the message of Romans 8.28, which says, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, we have to be careful how we interpret this verse. Some people use this verse to make the blanket statement that all things work together for good, as if that's true for every person everywhere. But that's not what the verse says, is it? It says that in all things, God works for the good of who? the good of those who love him. So I can't promise a happy ending for anyone who has not given their life to Jesus. But here's what I can promise. For those who are in Christ, God brings good things out of bad things. So however you are hurting at the moment, however afraid you are, however bleak the future looks to you right now, you don't have to give up. 
Because in God, you have the most powerful ally you could possibly have, and he will carry you to the best possible future. And he will do that because he loves you. So if you're in that difficult season right now and you don't have answers to your toughest why questions, what, you, what should you be doing? How, how should you spend your time? Well, here's my advice. You hold on to Jesus with everything that you've got. And hold on to the truth that we know about God, that he is good, he is faithful. And hold on to the promises that we find in Scripture. And I'll close by giving you three important promises that anyone can claim if you are in Christ. The first one is, you are not alone. You're not alone. Just before Jesus left this world and returned to the Father, one of the last things he said to his disciples was this. He said, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. It makes all the difference in the world to know that Jesus is with you. I've said before that my kids have no problem being in the dark when I am with them. But they sometimes freak out a little bit if they have to be in the dark alone. And it's the same with us. We need God's presence to comfort us, to give us peace. And if you have a relationship with God through Jesus, he has promised that he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. The second promise to claim is that pain can serve a purpose. This is one of the good things that God can bring out of a bad situation. And if you are hurting, remember that you are surrounded by people who are also hurting. And God can use you to minister to them. It's like we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where the Apostle Paul tells us that God comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. It's a powerful thing when you can go to someone and say, here's what I've been through and here's how God brought me through it. That can be so life-giving for someone who's in that dark place. Finally, here's the third thing I encourage you to remember. One day, our pain will be in the past. I guess for me, this is the most helpful truth of all. It's so good to know that it's not always going to be this way. Back in 2 Corinthians, Paul explains that once we see Jesus face to face, even the worst of our pain will, will feel like it really wasn't so bad. And that may be hard to comprehend, but listen to Paul's words here. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles, this is amazing when you think about everything Paul went through. He said, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So according to this passage, where should we put our focus? We should remember the finish line, right? We should fix our eyes on what is eternal. We should fix our eyes on Jesus himself. But when you're in the middle of the darkest period of your life, is it really possible to do that? When you're asking why and you don't get an answer, is it really possible to fix your eyes on Jesus? I've seen it myself. It is possible. I've seen it in Ella Bothwell's mom, 
Christine. About a year ago, she shared her testimony with the church in Savannah. And what she shared was so heartbreaking and hard. But ultimately, she shares a story of hope. I want to read you this quote from Christine's testimony. She said, Ella left here, but immediately she was with Christ. Immediately she was whole again. God has been faithful. And God has given us hope and peace and joy where there shouldn't be any. Death has no power over us. And I want to scream out to the world that God did not do a disservice to us by not healing Ella on earth. She is healed. She has ultimate healing. There is hope, and the hope is in Jesus Christ. It's the hope that when we die, we'll have eternal life with Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, so it doesn't matter what the suffering is about. If you are a follower of Jesus, the best is yet to come. And she says, I 100% believe that we will be reunited with Ella. I still hurt for Ella's family, and I still pray for them. But I'm thankful for the hope that they have, and I'm thankful that I have that same hope. We all need that hope. And my sincere prayer for all of you is that if you, do, if you don't already have that hope that's found in Christ alone, I pray that you'll find it, and then you'll hold on with everything that you've got all the way to eternity. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I know that you have answers that we don't have. And for whatever reason, Lord, you don't give us all the answers. And you understand that that's difficult for us, but I know that you want us to trust you in spite of that. So, Lord, we ask for your help. We ask that you will help us to trust in you, in your goodness, in your power to, to bring good out of a bad situation. We trust that one day you will set things right and you will restore everything that's broken as we surrender to you. So Lord, I pray that you'll help us to do that. I pray that we will claim this hope that you've offered us through Jesus and that we'll share it with others and that they'll find it too. Lord, help us as a church lead people to that hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.